Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Today on This Week Health. It's now a standard for every new employee that comes into IS. They have to go on clinical rounds in their first 90 days because I want them to see the business that we're serving, not the business we think we're running. Thanks for joining us on this keynote episode, a This Week Health conference show. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a set of channels dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. For five years, we've been making podcasts that amplify great thinking to propel healthcare forward. Special thanks to our keynote show partners, CDW, Rubrik, Sectra, and Trellix for choosing to invest in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Now, on to our show. Trigger warning. This video discusses suicide and mental health issues, which may be difficult or triggering for some viewers. If you are struggling with suicidal thoughts or other mental health concerns, please seek support from a mental health professional or crisis hotline. Viewer discretion is advised. All right, today we're joined by Ed Kapetsky, retired Stanford Children's CIO. Ed, appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, thanks, Bill. Great to do it and great to know you all, all these years. One of the benefits of our small industry, we get to know a lot of people. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I wasn't going to let Sue Shane have all the fun. She did an interview with you recently. We'll dance around some of those topics because I like some of the topics. Maybe we'll go a little deeper on them. But we could start with uh, retired in a suit jacket. So is that just like your normal look? Or for those not watching, it looks like you're in an office. You have your suit jacket. It looks like you're at work. So is this what retirement looks like? Well, I wasn't planning this by any stretch. I'm only gone two weeks now, and uh, we had a major storm again come through the Bay Area, and our power is knocked out, so I had to call my friends at Stanford and let me in the office, take a shower, and I guess it's just a habit if I'm coming in to be have a jacket on, plus I'm trying to stay warm. Well, this is going to be one of the conversations I have with you, because I think one of the things that's impressive is you have a plan post-retirement. There's a lot of things that your life has been about, even over and above being a CIO, and that's going to be an extension of what you do. And I want to talk a little bit about that, because I think sometimes people retire and they're not sure what they're going to do next. And we can talk about some of the people that have retired. I've talked to some of the CIOs. Some of them have like mobile homes and they just wanted a quiet life after being a CIO. But it doesn't sound like you're going after the quiet life. What are some of the things that you're going to be doing? Well, Billy and I came into this from engineering, systems engineering and healthcare 40 some years ago. And my goal was to improve healthcare. And I had no idea what IT was at the time and it exploded and I was there and timing on all that. So my contributions in healthcare have been from better systems, better workflows, better automation, better intelligence. And I think after 40, 41 some years, I decided the CIO role is all consuming and I wanted to hand it off. We've developed a number of successors here. At least three people can take the job and I know they're doing a search, but 
One of the missions that found me was mental health and addiction. And you don't choose everything in life, but that's certainly now a new passion of mine. And I helped co-found and co-chair the Chime Opioid Task Force, which we're still going strong and actually continuing to contribute. And I'm working in that space locally, Santa Clara County, overdose prevention and other things. So it's really a gift that I can contribute in that space. Also, I've gotten involved with mentoring startup companies, and I actually just joined the board of one that we funded the seed round on, and we're bringing it to the U.S. So I think a combination of continuing to mentor and advise others, continuing to stay active and improving healthcare problems, mental health is clearly one that we're all a deficit on in this country, and I have a passion around now. I appreciate you taking up that banner. Obviously, it's very personal for you with your son and all the things that have gone on there. And I love the progress that has been made in terms of what we're doing at the hospitals and the healthcare systems and the new protocols we're putting in the playbooks. We've made so much progress there, but we're not making progress on the opioid crisis. Where do you think the next major push will be in the next couple of years? Well, let me just disagree with you a little there. I actually think we made significant progress in the last five years, especially in the management of opioids in hospitals and healthcare systems. Yeah, and I agree. And that's what I was trying to say is that we've made tons of progress there. But just overall, when the pandemic hit, we saw just... That problem exacerbated significantly due to access and isolation issues associated with that disease. And Secondarily, we've had an influx of fentanyl that is now laced in almost every street drug people are thinks they're buying out there, and we have a crisis in adolescent mortality right now. Uh, and, and frankly, I'm really excited to be working with Santa Clara County. They're doing amazing stuff to address that problem. We now have distributed free naloxone in every high school in Santa Clara County. So basically, Bill, we're moving more to harm reduction. We've got to get people into recovery. We've got, and it's a long-term issue, but immediately we've got to implement harm reduction measures. For example, safe injection sites where you're supervised, secondarily testing of meds. Thirdly, the state of California has a free naloxone program and all healthcare systems are eligible to distribute anybody on opiates, whether it's prescribed or not, should have naloxone in their presence and with people around them because overdoses are extremely likely. So that's how we're tackling it now, but there's serious policy issues that have to be addressed. Number one, funding for mental health has got to change. Secondarily, I think Sharing of information that's critical on chronically ill patients has got to be changed. We cannot isolate patient care to silos when we're dealing with a chronic long-term condition where the patient will go to multiple healthcare providers. So we've actually advanced that quite a bit. Uh, even at Stanford Children's uh, Bill, I'm a sponsor. I've gotten others to sponsor. We have a teen van that goes out and serves and underserved children. 
And I've been on it multiple times. It's alarming how many people are out there without homes, without shelter, without food. And we are a lifeline now for those patients. We will connect them with needed services. We'll even transport them. But we go around to very high-risk communities and just watch the kids coming out of the woods or out of the schools. They're coming because they know we're there to help. And we don't charge a penny. It's all donor-sponsored. But we really have serious issues in our community, sir. Yeah, I love the work that the task force has done on the playbooks. And I love the work that we've done in the health systems to reduce the access to those drugs, over-prescribing them and the access. And I think we've done a lot in that healthcare. What you're describing is really us going outside of our four walls now. It's really engaging the community. It's engaging our policymakers. It's engaging. It's, is that something that you're encouraging CIOs to look at as part of their work or identifying a team of people that's going to do that for a health system? Yes, definitely. And frankly, I'm carrying on that mission with Stanford Children's. I, I was just on a call that I orchestrated between Santa Clara County experts and Stanford pediatric specialists yesterday to develop an addiction clinic for teenagers at Stanford. They're, they've had one at Santa Clara County for two years. It's extremely successful. And we live in an area where we need to do this. It's the problem is everywhere. So we're learning from those that are advancing. And yeah, Bill, it takes more than just providing a care treatment center. You've got to draw the people in. You've got to encourage the community to refer people. The other thing we got to do is change the stigma. And I've been an advocate on that. I've had a couple podcasts on that. The stigma around mental health and addiction is holding us back. And the heaviest load is on the patient, but it's also on policy where we think mental health shouldn't be funded at equal levels. It's ingrained in institutional policies. It's also shared by families who, like ours, went through trauma. And we were carrying a lot of uncertainty and guilt for years until we opened up about it. So I'd say, Bill, we got to change the rhetoric. We got to change the dialogue to where this is a acceptable illness that people have. And my God, it's like one in three almost now. It's coming out more as we talk about it. And I think that's the other thing CIOs can do. I know we don't have a lot of time on our hands, but we can be spokespersons for those who are in need and create a safe environment for them to talk about it. We did a lot in my department over the last three years around this issue. And even in our team huddles, people talked about issues and challenges, and they never thought they could before. I don't know how many people came to me and said, Ed, thank you for opening up the discussion. And they were just embarrassed. But here they were on the brink of disaster and depression, but trying to come into work and function, et cetera. And I think we just got to recognize it. Just like you injure yourself or you get another uh, virus, it's the same thing, only it's chronic. Yeah. My experience with this is interesting because in my family, yeah, my daughter has struggled with depression. And so she went out and got a service dog and trained that service dog. And we thought, oh, what's she getting a dog for? That's crazy. It's going to be hard. She's going to travel. How's she going to, all that stuff. And we just weren't thinking about it right. I mean, the dog truly is a service dog. Yeah. I mean, 
it comforts her, it yep. calms her. It's, and we're not having the dialogue. So we had no idea how important and the life change, it might sound silly to some people if they're listening to this, but the life change dog brought about for her the comfort and the ability to take that dog into situations where she was uncomfortable has really helped her to grapple with a lot of things that she wasn't able to. It's just having the dialogue, talking yeah, about yeah. it more, I think will help. Absolutely. And just accepting it, that people have this, right? Anxiety, depression, bipolar, whatever. It's been definitely exacerbated over the last couple of years with all the uncertainty in society and isolation and COVID and inability to really connect with others. So a hat's off. And I think we all need to start pushing the needle on this. That's one of the purposes of the opioid task force is not just to look at how we can leverage technology, but to change the discourse on this and talk about it transparently on what we're doing and what we should be doing. I'm wondering how you create that environment in the workforce. And this is a pretty heavy conversation, but when I was a CIO, we actually had a suicide in our IT team. And the number one thing I heard from the people as we got together and started talking about it was, I worked with that person every day and I had no idea this stuff was going on. I had no idea it was this bad. I had no idea. How do you create that environment? Do you have any success in creating an environment where people feel they can talk about these things? Well, yeah, I do. I'll just speak from my own experience. Talking about our family experience with my son's addiction and then passing five years ago, I don't know how many people came to me and said, Ted, I've kept it inside all the years. My brother passed away or my sister has it and we, it goes on. I mean, it, once you open up the dialogue as a leader, others will take the bait. Uh, secondly, we implemented, we have a lean management system here at Packard and IS and that involves daily huddles with tiered huddling all the way up 10 minutes every day with all the executives. And on our huddles, on our team huddles in IS, we started bringing up mental health topics and opening up the dial line. People felt safe to do it and others want to help each other. Like you said, people didn't know about it all these years, right? We had a similar issue. Someone relapsed. One of the most intelligent Microsoft engineers we've ever had. And we never knew he was in recovery, but when COVID hit, he relapsed and unfortunately passed away within a week. It was unreal how fast. So it was before we opened up these channels to talk about things, but that certainly created an impetus for us as in the department to talk about it more and be more aware of things. And Bill, we have something called Schwartz Rounds in healthcare and we practice it in Stanford Children's, it's really about the care teams and them releasing things they've held inside for years, like medical mistakes or patients that didn't make it or whatever. We're humans. And when something traumatic happens, we care more about others than ourselves. And a lot of clinicians carry a lot of guilt and a lot of trauma. And Schwartz rounds is an opportunity to open that up in a group setting. So on that, I did one on stigma on mental health one time a couple of years ago, and 
I had like eight people from my department come to it. Well, why did they? Because the topic was relevant to them. And people came afterwards and talked to me. One person was suffering from PTSD from Afghanistan, was a veteran. And these things aren't encouraged until now. We just got to change it, I think. And that's what I'm up to. Yeah, absolutely. If people haven't heard the interview with you and Sue, I would highly encourage them to listen to it because Sue got you to talk about lean and lean processes, bringing it into Stanford. We're not going to touch on that subject only because you guys had a great discussion on it. I'll just point people over there. But you know, now that you're not in the chair, now that you're not in the CIO chair, we could probably talk about some things that we weren't able to talk about. I often joke, the five minutes before the interview and the 10 minutes after the interview, a lot of times with sitting CIOs are the best part because they say all the things that they can't say on the air. Well, yeah, I mean, within reason, I, you I wanna, know me by now. What's, yeah, well, I, I wanna ask you, I, I wanna sort of look out at, first of all, I wanna look at what's going on in healthcare right now. And then I wanna look out at where it's potentially going. So right now we do have some staffing shortages. We have financial pressures due to wage inflation and other things. We have burnout and those kinds of things that people are concerned about. A lot of pressure on health systems right now. How is healthcare going to get to the other side of this, do you think? What are some areas or some ways that they're going to get from this point of being under pressure all the time to getting, I don't know, ahead of it and really serving a less pressure-filled environment? I'm not sure that's ever possible, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Well, that's a big question and not a simple answer at all. I think the last few years have brought to light a number of really troubling concerns. Uh, I don't have a particular order on this, so let me just wing it. But number one, we've advanced the EMR presence to an almost 100% level in our acute institutions. We have almost no interoperability between acute and post-acute. So when you look at most illnesses, it's very rare you're in the hospital, but your care is given outside the hospital. So there's a, still a need to do better automation on the continuum of care around the patient, not just the acute episode. Secondly, our systems that we implemented are transaction-based, so we're putting in a lot of data, but we're at the early stage of leveraging that data for intelligence. And I think that may be one of the breakthroughs, is that we finally start using the data, both our historical and our current, and combined with other organizations with light data, very much into that in the pediatric world, uh, because it's a smaller subsection of the population, only 6% of the population. So I think that's a big deal. The, the issue today is I think the, our systems have not improved productivity. I think they have, but all the load and all the entry of data and all the policies we've implemented have added burden on the front line. And we got to take that off somehow. And I think one of the answers on that is digital transformation. And I know that's the new buzzword 
my title was even changed a couple months ago when they realized I was leaving them now information and digital officer but we need to take waste out and I would say it starts with basically the administrative loads of staff right budgeting and getting things procured and staff hired and recruited all those things were still very much archaic on and Secondly, then when you get to the caregivers, we've got to take load off somehow. We've either got to capture data electronically instead of manually, um, or we got to develop better algorithms, and we're doing that here, to say, hey, the data is indicating these high risks. Hone in on that, clinicians, instead of the whole field. And we are doing a lot of that with Stanford. We have unique skills and biomedical and data sciences here, and we're combining that. We've got a clinical informatics program that's world-class, but we're unique built. We're one of those those top entities that maybe is 5% of healthcare in the country, right? Most community hospitals can't afford all that, so we've got to develop it and then clone it and transfer it, is my view on all that. Well, let's go back and forth a little bit on digital transformation. I'm glad you brought that up. And what I'd yes. like to do is follow the patient journey and talk about the digital transformation that can occur. And we'll start with the patient, the patient before they're a patient, the consumer that we don't necessarily know about and engaging that person. So this is almost greenfield. It's like they're not in our EMR yet, but they've just moved into our community. How do health systems think about digitally engaging that patient before they even enter the hospital? Well, our first Space is our consumer portal where, I mean, we definitely are in that space because our market is young families and we have to compete for those, right? Against Kaisers and Sutters and others. So we are actually re-engineering our consumer site after 10 years. It's going to go live this year. But basically it's to make Packard available to them, all our resources, our clinicians, it helps them set up an appointment. It helps define the services we're in, the locations we're in. So that's one area that we put quite a bit of emphasis on and are now re-engineering that. We have also automated tools for our patients, like mobile apps that have wayfinding, appointment scheduling, et cetera, that we've advanced. So we make it easier for the patient once they've once they move from consumer to customer, once they become our patient, we equip them with tools. My chart, we have a mobile app that's out on out there for free. And so when they come on site, they can do wayfinding to find the location of their clinic, et cetera, et cetera. They communicate with their clinicians. We also, Bill, last year implemented a new patient communication systems. We had about 30 different methods and all unique, but we put in one system that's integrated with our EMR, and now we can send out select communications to, for instance, all our pediatric patients at school season get a notice about flu vaccines. Or if we have diabetic patients and we wanna send out an announcement, we we can do that automated-wise, and it's really improved our communications between our caregivers and our care units and our patients. Uh, yes. so those are some of the things we're doing. 
Yeah, that's exceptional. I mean, setting up those lines of communication. I applaud you guys just for thinking about it, right? We're going to engage the consumer in our community, but you're in a very competitive marketplace. All right, we'll get back to our show in just a minute. We're excited. We have a great webinar for you in May on May 4th at one o'clock Eastern time. It is part of our leadership series on modern data strategies in healthcare. In this webinar, we're going to explore data-driven approaches to healthcare and how they can improve patient outcomes, increase efficiency and reduce costs, which are also critical at this time in this juncture in healthcare. Our expert speakers will explore data governance, analytic strategies, anything that can help healthcare providers gain actionable insights from healthcare data. We would love to have you there and we're excited about it. You can register on our website, just hit the leadership series, Modern Data Strategies. It's gonna be in the top right-hand corner of our website, thisweekhealth.com. You can discover how we are going to use data to be more efficient, effective in the modern healthcare system. We'd love to have you join us. Again, hit the website thisweekhealth.com, top right-hand corner, sign up today. Hope to see you there. Now, back to the show. Let's move into the acute care center for a minute. I love talking to children's hospitals because you guys have the coolest buildings and the coolest stuff. What are some of the digital tools that you've implemented inside the acute care center for patients and their families? Yeah, well, that's a great time. It's um we, in 2017, we tripled the size of our hospital. We are only 31 years old, and we're now top 10 in the country, three years in a row. And we expanded our acute building 200% in 2017. We put 23 new technologies in that facility. And I won't go through them all, but some of the highlights were RTLS and we created a standard with the adult hospital because we're very connected and physically, but we're separate in care, uh, but we share emergency room and supply chain and other things. So we, we had to create one standard for real-time location services. We track all our assets, like our biomed equipment, et cetera, and it's really cut down on lost equipment, time to find critical equipment when you're treating patients. We also can track our staff. We can track any asset. And we never refer to our people as assets, but they're our greatest assets. But on our badges, our tracking devices, and when we can turn it on to see how long they've spent in the patient room, did they respond in an appropriate manner? So that was a big advance. Another thing we created on our own was a little, looks like a little iPad, but it, it sits outside on the wall of every patient room and critical indicators like diet restrictions, tests needed are on that board. So when nurses walk down the floor, they can see that patient is in need of a follow-up right now or they're coming up and then, so it, it was like a decision support tool, but a visual aid. Instead of having to go to the computer and look up every patient individually while they're doing the rounds, it's already giving them advice. So I, those were a couple of the cool things we did. Another thing that we implemented where we were one of the first to develop telesurgery. And in our ORs, we now video in high-level specialists from around the country, like at Texas Children's. And they consult 
during the surgery on the patient. So instead of flying that physician out here with four hours of flight time and everything else, we can save their time and video them in, and they're doing literally consults to our surgeons live during our surgery. So one of the things, Bill, here we advanced a long time ago was integration of biomed. We were like one of 5% of the hospitals in the country when we did it, and it has been such a boom for us. We're the highest acuity children's hospital in the country, and to have the clinical technology secured and fully integrated with our EMR and real-time is a major advance. And I think, I don't know why we don't do it across the country in every hospital. Because, I mean, as you were saying that, I was thinking you might still be in the top 5%. I mean, there's, there's, that is so expensive. We're in the top 10. I already know know, the number. I know, but but it's so expensive to do. I remember looking at it going, oh my gosh, we have so many biomed devices across 16 hospitals and the standard, we weren't really standardized across 16 hospitals. And there was just so many aspects of it. I'm like, okay, why don't we just start over and set standards and buy all this equipment? And I think we, we ended up setting a program up but it was going to be like a five-year program to replace all the equipment, like just one line of that equipment. And it's just, it was just very expensive. I want to take you one step further though, on the digital transformation. And this one's a little harder. This is the post-acute. And we talked about this. You have high acuity care for children. You're going to see them for probably many years, potentially. And you're going to have a lot of touch points remotely and whatnot. What's some of the digital transformation either that you see, or you would like to see in that post-acute care continuum? Well, I'll give you an example and I'll highlight an advance we did here. We have world-leading congenital heart repair for kids here. And those procedures require three surgeries. And our patients are, we're on a national referral level. So they don't stay necessarily local. These patients are referred to us and go back to their community. So we have to develop tight integration with the clinicians in their community. The other thing we did for these patients, because historically they would come for visits and there would be a batch process of data and then analysis. We actually developed tools that track their data real time, send them to our clinicians, and we can see the indicators now of when they're leading up to the need for the second and third procedures. And it's really advanced our leading edge. We've done similar stuff for diabetic patients where we're tracking their glucose. And instead of a batch meeting once a month, the data's coming in and the clinicians can check, are they, are they falling off at certain levels during the day? We can adjust their meds. So that's actually two things we innovated here already at Stanford Children's with patients that are maybe unique to us or we see a lot of problems. We've done similar things in bilirubin and stuff in the NICUs on predicting how much radiation people need and kids are super sensitive. So the lower doses you have, the better. And so we're doing a lot with the data, but we're not waiting for traditional methods of reporting. We're building automation, data automation tools and capture tools so that our clinicians can be ahead of the patient. And there's so much variability when you leave it on the patient in the self-report, dealing with a lot of different levels. And uh, 
of education level, official levels, et cetera, et cetera. So this just creates extension tools for us. And it allows our patients, again, to stay connected with data flowing in that we can act on, actionable data. I'm going to go larger on your career here. As you look over your career, you've seen a lot. So you've been around when the EHRs were just coming in, I would imagine. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, I actually, I cut my teeth in the VA when we first developed DHCP. And then I went to the private sector and that was before EMRs were out there. So yeah, I've seen a lot, quite <laughs> frankly. Well, how do you, talk to me about longevity. Because the the CIO role was very difficult for me. I mean, I joke that I was never at a loss to find someone in the health system that wanted to tell me how bad I was at my job. It's because a lot of stuff gets dumped on our plate. It's like the documentation. They're like, why do we have to document so much? I'm like, well, it's regulatory. I didn't come up with it, but yes, we can look at, maybe there are some things in this that somehow was not implemented correctly. What do you attribute your longevity to? Hell of a persistence, if you want. <laughs> you got to be persistent. You know, I've had a couple of weeks to think about it, and I look back, and in 1998, I was chair of CHIME. It was only six years old at the time, and I said to everyone for my fall forum, I said, look, we're never going to make it if we don't partner with the clinicians. There's no way. And so we invited our physician partners in 1998 for the first time before they were called CMIOs, and from there... In my career, wherever I went, it was never acting alone. It was always in partnership with others. I created governance that was inclusive and participative so that finance and surgery and we were all in one room planning our IS priorities every year. And I think the CMIO role has been a, I would say that was one of the major differentiators in our trajectory. When we in healthcare created that partnership role of the CIO, CMIO, and then eventually CNIO and others. It became that we're just part of the same problems. We're not different and we need to learn a lot. You need to tell us how to automate things. We can do anything with technology, including screw it up. We really need the impact on the front line to understand that and to improve adoption, there's no way a technologist is going to shove it down anybody's throat in terms of adoption. No way. I don't care what the rules are. It's all about clinicians saying this is what we need and we partner with them to develop it. I think strategic partnerships and collaboration are the answer, not being an expert. I, being an expert the technology. Partnerships, you're innovating the business. Well, it's interesting because we now have CIOs that are, that have the MD credentials and, yeah. uh, you know. Quite a few. Quite a few and growing. Yeah, quite a few. But I still think that advice is valid for them because it's not about them being the expert. It's about them being able to rally people, get people to the table, put the right governance and structure together. Even the lean stuff you talk about, getting people involved in the ongoing improvement culture, if you will, of making things better on a daily basis. Right. And Bill, that's one of the reasons when I came here, I changed our name from IT to information services. I felt extremely strong. I went out on clinical rounds and I saw the problem. 
we were buried behind computer terminals and 50% of our cows were dysfunctional the day I rounded. And I went, what's going on here? Right? Yeah. We were very proud, but the basics were broken. And so we turned it around. We changed our name to services and every person in IS that year went on clinical rounds. It's now a standard for every new employee that comes into IS. They have to go on clinical rounds in their first 90 days because I want them to see the business that we're serving, yep. not the business we think we're running. Well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm curious. It's very I'm, different. I'm curious about Lean because Lean has this whole concept of uh, Gemba and being there and rounding and that kind of stuff. So we've gone remote. A lot of organizations have gone remote. How do you keep that going? How do you maintain that? Hard. It's very hard. And it kind of broke down because when you can't come on site, you don't really know what's going on. And secondly, you lose your relationships. There is nothing better than people going to where the real value is produced, that's called Gemba, and caring. I wanna emphasize that because you can't just show up in a suit. You gotta care. And the caring means you ask people what they need and you follow through. That's key. A lot of people try to fake it and they go, okay, we're checking off the boxes, we're going on rounds. But if it's not authentic, you lose everything. When people know you care, you don't need to show up. They'll call you, but you've got to show it. And I think when Bill, when we came back from COVID, the first thing we did was back on clinical rounds, starting with the exec team, but also my department. And it's magic. And people know we're out there to help them. And you also got to follow up, like I said. And if they know you're going to do that. They'll partner with you forever. And I think we have some of the highest engagement scores in the country in this department. And it's because they feel we're doing good stuff and they are valued. And I think when you look at lean, there's kind of two principles that are dominant. Number one, you're here as a servant leader. Get rid of the org chart. You're here to serve the people on the front line and all the issues, you have to help get over it. And you can't do that without going to Gimba. You don't learn that in a conference room. And you certainly can't see it from a conference room. But people, like even during COVID, we actually had a strike last year. And there was a lot of turmoil. That That is such a difficult issue when you have clinicians five polarized and some walking out. And when we had to come back on recovery, one of the ways was presence, was going back out, building that trust again, showing up and respecting what happened. But also, again, we're all in this together. We have to be a we. And so you're just not going to do that, issuing edicts, memos, or showing up in conference rooms. You got to go to Campbell. Yeah. And so Absolutely. Ed, I appreciate you putting a suit on, going back in the office one more time to join us. I will see you this Sunday. That'll give people an idea for when we're recording this pre-Vive and Chime. I'll see you on Sunday at the Opioid Task Force golf event. Look forward to that. We sure. all know who's going to win before we even get there, but we'll go compete anyway. Just that. <laughs> oh, that's all right.
No, thank you, Bill. I really appreciate it. And uh, I've been honored to be in this industry. I don't plan on leaving it completely ever. (laughs) And uh, wherever I can contribute, I want to keep doing that. So thank you for your service here today. I think it's great. Well, I appreciate all that you've done. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, Ed. I love the chance to have these conversations. I think if I were a CIO today, I would have every team member listen to a show like this one. I believe it's conference level value every week. If you want to support This Week Health, tell someone about our channels. That would really benefit us. We have a mission of getting our content into as many hands as possible. And if you're listening to it, hopefully you find value. And if you could tell somebody else about it, it helps us to achieve our mission. We have two channels. We have the conference channel, which you're listening to, and This Week Health Newsroom. Check them out today. You can find them wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast. You get the picture. We are everywhere. We want to thank our keynote partners, CDW, Rubrik, Sectra, and Trellix, who invest in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.